any good that we might do, it only comes from your Son, Jesus Christ. We are so thankful and grateful that you give us life. Life here, life now, abundant life, but life eternal. And we pray that we would cling to Jesus, our only hope, the one who paid the penalty, the price for our sins, that we might have life. He gave his life, and Lord, he was raised to abolish the grave. We thank you, we praise you, we give you the glory, do your name, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Please have a seat. So it was in the uh, spring of 1977, that's why uh, when Barb and I uh, were at Emmaus, we went in uh, the fall of 76, the spring of 77, we had the opportunity to go down uh, to downtown Chicago to attend a live event, How Should We Then Live, put on by uh, Francis uh, Schaeffer. Uh, just a note, Francis Schaeffer uh, was an American, but he lived uh, mainly his life in Labrie, which was in Alpine, Switzerland. Uh, some of you may not be familiar with his work, some of you uh, may be, uh, but he is as close to a, uh, a, a, a prophet as we had in the last century. In the series, he gives an example of what faith is. He said, suppose we are climbing in the Alps and are very high on the bare rock and suddenly the fog rolls in. The guide turns to us and says that the ice is forming and that there is no hope. Before morning, we will all freeze to death here on the shoulder of this mountain. Simply to keep warm, the guide keeps us moving in the dense fog further out on the shoulder until none of us have any idea where we are. And after an hour or so, someone says to the guide, suppose I dropped and hit a ledge ten feet down in the fog. What would happen then? The guide said that, well, you might make it till morning and live. So with absolutely no knowledge or any reason to support the action, uh, one of the group hangs and drops into the fog. So this would be one kind of faith, he says, a leap of faith. Suppose, however, after we have worked out on the shoulder in the midst of the fog and the growing ice on the rock, we had stopped and we heard a voice that said, you cannot see me, but I know exactly where you are from your voices. I'm on another ridge. I've lived in these mountains, man and boy, for over 60 years, and I know every foot. I assure you that 10 feet below you, there is a ledge. If you hang and drop, you can make it through the night, and I will get to you in the morning. He goes on to say, I would not hang and drop at once, but I would ask questions to try to ascertain if the man knew what he was talking about and if he was not my enemy. In the Alps, for example, I would ask him his name. If the name he gave me was the name of a family from that part of the mountains, it would count a great deal to me. 
In the Swiss Alps, there are certain family names that indicate mountain families in that area. In my desperate situation, even though time would be running out, I would ask him what to me would be the adequate and sufficient questions. And when I had become convinced of his answers, I uh, would hang and drop. Now, Schaeffer's story is, is important in that it captures this notion that faith in Christ is not blind, as we are so often accused. It is based on reason, it is based on logic, and it's based on information, but that action is in the, the liminal area, the, the gap. The, the boundary line between that which is seen and that which is unseen. That's what we call faith. Faith bridges the gap by trusting in someone who's in a better position than we are. So in his story, faith was put in this man's knowledge who grew up in the Alps. He grew up there and he knew where he was at. So therefore, at a level, it was rational, but it was still faith because you still had to drop down the ledge through the fog. But the second point is also about faith, and that's about the object of of faith. So when you walk across ice, and some of you have heard the story, when I walked across ice and it was insufficient to hold me, and down I went, The ice and its firmness are the objects of your faith. You can believe that the ice will keep you up all day long, but you'll be quickly wet and cold and miserable and in danger if your trust is is misplaced. You see, it doesn't matter whether you have a little faith in the ice or a lot of faith in the ice. It's the strength of the ice that counts. It's the strength of the object. So a believer's faith catches, uh, captures both of these ideas. First, God provides evidence of himself in creation or through prophecy, which is uh, compelling uh, archaeology, the consistency of Scripture, many Many areas, uh, this is not a, a message about apologetics, but think in that direction and, and you'll, your mind will go to many other areas. And he doesn't leave us, therefore, without witness. He doesn't leave us without guidance. Second, he requires something of us. As we see in the scripture, there is only one way to salvation, and that's Jesus Christ. So he requires of us for salvation to make the object of our faith Jesus. What matters is whether we have little faith or great faith is in fact the object of our faith, uh, Jesus Christ, his sinless life, his substitutionary death, his bodily resurrection. And if that's not true, then Paul goes out in 1 Corinthians, and he says, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, our faith is in vain. So whether you, your, your faith is not the issue 
it is an issue, but the issue is the object of your faith. I mean, think about this. What is more fundamental uh, in uh, the structure of English grammar than knowing the difference between the subject and the object? So if you were to say that uh, Mary uh, kicked the ball, you have a notion that it's something that Mary is doing. She's kicking the ball. If you were to try to make it sound like the ball was doing something to Mary, you would have to switch the subject and uh, the object. That's basic grammar. But the same is true in the gospel. I mean, being a believer is about God doing something with us, not the reverse. We are dead in our trespasses, in our sins. We don't take that really enough. We think that we're wounded. Oh, I'm wounded in my trespasses and my sins. Put me on a stretcher. Take me to the hospital. I'll get well and I can handle this. It's not what Scripture says. Scripture says we are dead in our trespasses and our sins. Dead people don't bring themselves back to life. So He saves us. That's saying something about him, not about us. We don't save ourselves. Biblically, we are the lost ones. We are the found ones. We are the saved ones. God is the subject of salvation. We are the object of that salvation. But faith has something to do with this as well. Our faith in understanding that in our life, it has nothing to do with some kind of Uh, just simple subjective uh, belief that's irrational. Because for us, we're not the subject of our faith. Christ is the object. Uh, It's not what I'm getting at and not saying well at this particular moment is it's not faith in faith. Faith in faith will get you nowhere. It is faith in Christ that will bring you life. In Galatians 4, 9, Paul uses the phrase, now that you know God. But if you know the scripture, you, you, you recall that he immediately changes that. And he says, uh, he puts it in his larger uh, context by saying, or rather are known by God. It's a distinction that, uh, distinction that's so critical uh, that uh, the whole of our faith rises and falls on it. Now, what, I'm aiming a lot of these remarks at people who uh, struggle with their faith. When I became a new uh, believer, I would go back and forth on, has, uh, you know, have, have I jeopardized my salvation in some way? Have I done something that would alienate myself uh, from God? And... In reflecting on something, and that's what I'm communicating here today, is that it's God's work in me and not my work in me. It's God's work for you and not your work for God. In our text today, we'll see that uh, just a couple of uh, uh, threads that we will pull and see how that, one, faith in your ancestry and reliance on certain beliefs are insufficient for true faith, are insufficient for belief in Christ, are insufficient for eternal life. 
In short, it doesn't matter whether your parents were believers or not, as it relates, it matters a great deal, but not as it relates to your salvation. God does not have any grandchildren. You are not brought into the faith based upon the faith of your parents, or even based upon the faith that the church that we're in right now holds. It's based upon the faith that you put into Jesus Christ. Let's read John eight thirty through 47. A lot of things in here uh, to focus on. Uh, we will get to as many as we are able. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are the off, uh, we are offspring of Abraham, and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham. Yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. But this is not what Abraham did. You're doing the works your father did. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one Father, even God. Jesus told them, If God were your Father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your Father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. So despite this widespread belief, we're told in verse 30 that there were those who came to faith. I want you to reflect on when you came to faith. And how the things that perhaps you had heard over and over again took on new life and new meaning and how they were able to penetrate your heart in a, a different 
away. Everything was new. Everything was precious, even if it was old. When my uh, heart opened to God, everything was new and new. I hadn't heard any of these. I had to go to a doctor's office, and uh, on the doctor's office, you know, they always had these magazines or these books, and there was a book and had all the stories of the Bible. So I read them uh, for children, and that was my that was my beginning. That was my start of learning uh, the word of God. How would it have been? I, I want you to seek to put yourself, even if just for a moment, in that frame of reference. How would it have been if you had become a, a believer in Jesus himself spoke to you and said to you, if you abide in my word, you truly are my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. I mean, these, these were wonderful. This was good news for those who were listening. And what you learn is, is that he is the only one that can bring us true freedom. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I, I have to note that we live in a day, in a time, when all truth, at least that we hear of anyway, is rooted in contextuality. In other words, it's my context that determines truth. If my context says I am true, this is true, this is true to me, then it is true. And you don't have anything uh, to say about it. And, and that, that, of course, puts us in a world that is very reminiscent of the book of Judges, where everyone did that which was right in their own eyes. Well, that's we're one step away from anarchy in that case. It's just a strange time to live when Jesus says that, uh, that I will, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. And people will argue that truth, even the notion of truth, isn't a, a real thing. I, it, this is interesting to me that Jesus, when he presents himself, it's almost like one can see how it was presented to the Bereans. Jesus is saying that there are some things that you need to do. You don't need to believe this blindly. You need to believe what I'm saying because it is truth. It makes sense. It should ring true with your understanding of the Old Testament. He said to them that if they know him as truth, then uh, they will be uh, remain connected to him in his, uh, in word and to him in a person. So he tells us in detail how to be free. Now, it begins with belief. That's the first place. Jesus said, and this is interesting, I want you to look at the text uh, if you have it in front of you. And, and I'll leave it to you whether I'm stretching this uh, exegetical bit uh, too too far it helps me to explain uh, what happens uh, next so what you have is jesus said to the jews verse 30 many believed in him verse 31 jesus said uh, to the jews who had believed him note there's a slight difference there 
And the difference between uh, 31 and, and, and 30 is that in 30, it, it says into him uh, more literally. In other words, they trusted him. This phrase indicates a, a, a deep commitment. Verse 31 is not the same phrase, even though it's almost identical. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him. It doesn't say to the Jews who had believed in him. Well, okay, wow, John, that's, that's, that's a, a, a bit of a stretch. But at least the following dialogue is going to show that a larger group is present. Commentators are divided on this, okay? Some commentators say, no, this is exactly the same group, and, and they threw Jesus under the bus so fast that uh, make your head spin. I don't believe that. I believe that when the Scripture says that somebody believed in Jesus, they believed in Jesus. And I have to do something with that. So what I would take it is, is that there was a larger group present who were almost like Paul, with Paul on Areopagus, where he said, tell, tell us more. We want to we hear more. We're not throwing stones at you. We're not leaving. We want to hear what you have to say. There was a larger group, and we find as we go along that there was an even uh, larger uh, group who, who ha- hated him. So in some ways, this second group, this group, tell us more, were like Nicodemus, where they believed him but not in him. In other words, Nicodemus was incredibly curious in chapter 3. And of course, we find out through the book that Nicodemus became a, a, a true believer. And you have Nicodemus as the teacher of Israel came to him at night. He was an expert in the Old Testament. And Jesus says, unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus was all confused about this. But nevertheless, he stayed with him. And Jesus said this was going to be brought about by the Spirit and the Word. That's how it would be accomplished. And so Jesus gives us a few steps here to be his uh, followers. Three things follow this initial uh, if. If you continue in my Word, then... It's not supplied, but that's uh, present there, uh, logically... Number one, you are truly my disciples. Number two, you will know the truth. And number three, the truth will make you free. So you have those three things. And he argued that remaining connected to him is through his word is how to be free. But free from what? And, and that becomes a, a big uh, question here. Because this whole notion of not being free was deeply uh, offensive uh, to the Jews there. And they were immediately offended. And what was their offense? It was related to Abraham. The, uh, the Jews who heard these words uh, believed. And this is the important uh, thing about what their belief system was at that point. They believed that because they were born a child of Abraham, that the blessings of the kingdom were given to them. They believed that because they were a child of Abraham, they were afforded freedom. 
and they were afforded a righteousness. And in fact, many uh, at that time believed that not only did they have that, but that uh, they were the gift to the world in presenting uh, that to them, which they rarely succeeded at in that day. After all, I mean, they had the temple. They had the law. They had claim to God's presence with them. It, it's an amazing thing, but the thing is, is Jesus is saying, yes, all of that is true. That's all true, but that's not going to get you into a right relationship with God. And he moved in a direction that dis, just disturbed uh, them. He argued that Abraham... Essentially, what's behind this in the larger context, Abraham is not the one who freed you from sin. The God of Abraham freed you from sin through the agency of Abraham. And they said, no, we've never, uh, we've always been uh, free, which is like, seriously? I mean, they were under, they were under Rome at that very moment. Uh, Not to mention, had they forgot about Babylon? Had they forgot about Egypt? Had they forgot about Persia, Greece? I mean, they just, it was like, okay. You know what? You cannot give the gospel to someone effectively who has no awareness of their sin and their bondage. If someone is not aware that they are a sinner, then there is nothing to be saved from. That is why Jesus Christ said that he came to seek and save that which is lost. The righteous do not need salvation. Well, of course they need salvation. The notion is not that they're righteous. The notion is that they think they're righteous. So there's this presence, this bondage of sin that is Jesus is driving home. And he says in verse 34, He said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. You see, the very act of sinning reveals that the one doing the action is under the power and the authority of sin. And it was that their ongoing pattern of sin, which he continually reveals uh, throughout the book, that they are in a pattern of sin and therefore slaves to sin. Verse 35, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Now this, for those people at the time, immediately, because they know the stories of the Old Testament, they know them by heart, they know this is an allusion to Ishmael and Hagar, and how they were uh, cast out, but how the son, uh, that is uh, Isaac, remained. uh, And so what he's pointing out is the issue of salvation is not physical. It's not a physical relationship. It is, in fact, a spiritual one. And Jesus is the true son and seed of, of Abraham. He remains in the house. He remains over the house. Yet he gives us the privilege, you and I, the privilege of becoming sons and daughters of God by faith in Christ. Yes, those Jews at that time, they were the descendants of Abraham. 
but they were the same ones who were going to try to kill him. And therefore, Jesus is arguing that they're not Abraham's spiritual descendants. And in their denial, get this, because we, we see this today so that we know this is not a new trick. This is, this is something that Satan has uh, conjured uh, from, uh, from way in the past in verse uh, 41. We are not illegitimate <laughs> like you. That was what they were saying. The innuendo is obvious. Remember in verse 19, they even asked, uh, where is your father? You know, I mean, they're playing on this. It's something that, do you think that Jesus' history was unknown by this time? He's within the last six months of his life. He is a very famous person. Do you think the journalists of the day haven't dug in to find all the dirt? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There was something in this story. <laughs> There's this story about Bethlehem and a virgin birth. Do you believe that? Right, no. They accused him of being illegitimate. And sometimes this stigma would pop out in the public debate. When the other side, to include Satan, when the other side is losing the argument, they drop any pretense of logic or reason. What they do is they go straight for the person. I mean, and this is so old. This is so old, it even has a name in Latin. And we don't even speak Latin anymore. Nobody speaks Latin. We may learn it, uh, but uh, we, we, don't, we don't speak it. Argumentum ad hominem. All right, meaning... That's an argument directed toward the man or towards the person. This is a personal attack that's designed for the uh, one who is losing the argument. Ad hominem always comes when their argument is lost. And and some start with that. Some start with that, which means they've they've lost it sometime before and they don't don't care anymore. But they're going to bring your personal circumstances. They're going to bring your trustworthiness. They're going to bring your character into question. This happens every day. This is not a mystery, but it is incredibly painful. It vilifies the person's background, their character, their motives, their trustworthiness. They couldn't answer him, so they attacked him. Yeah. Jesus told them in response, you don't, you don't understand that true disciples love Jesus. If you were of God, you would understand that what I am saying is true. So in verse 44, Jesus, he, he slams them. But it's not ad hominem. But he slams them with the hammer of truth. He made it clear that those who deny him, they are speaking about their father, the devil. The devil is the enemy of life and reality. Do you know it was by a lie? This was already practiced. And this is a theological, it's, it's, it's difficult to even think about these. But he was a liar before he lied to Eve. 
in the garden. He brought spiritual and physical death, and his desire is to destroy, distort the truth and to lead people away from God, the source of truth. In the millions of places all around the world, every day, whether it's homes or institutions or relationships or wherever it is, he desires to bring in lies and deceit, misdirection in order to cause ruin. How do you know that Satan is lying? Because he speaks. <laughs> in other words, this scripture is telling us that lying is as if we were to learn another language or as if we were to speak of it about our native tongue. It is his native tongue. He cannot help but lie. And if he speaks in truths, they're half-truths in order to design to get us to swallow a lie. Many accusations were brought against Jesus And in verse 46, he says, Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? Uh, And they could not. Uh, They should have recognized his divine origin. Uh, and, And since they couldn't stick an accusation on him, he's asking them, If you can't convict me of anything, why don't you believe me? And then he answers his own question. Belonging to God is the basis for hearing God. Have you ever wondered, if you're, if you're a believer, have you ever wondered how it is that you can say something to someone that is so profoundly, obviously, clearly true that it, it, it's inescapable? And the other person just goes, what? You know? And it's a matter of the movement of the Spirit of God in the person's life because the Spirit of God allows us to grasp the truths of the Word of God, to believe them, to obey them. When I trusted Christ, it wasn't the first time I'd heard the gospel. It was the first time that the gospel was made light to me. To hear... God is not a matter of discerning audible noises, uh, you know, heavenly commands and words. It's, it's understanding uh, what he uh, says through his word as enlightened, illuminated by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so he told them, you know, your father is the, the devil. I don't know where your faith rests uh, if it rests on parents or church it's time for a reevaluation it's a, it's a time to look solely completely to Jesus Christ because as i mentioned god has no grandchildren in every generation every individual must decide for themselves the atheist richard dawkins said faith is the great cop out and excuse to evade the need to think <laughs> and evaluate evidence. Uh, just the arrogance just rolling off the tongue. Faith is belief despite 
even perhaps of the lack of evidence. Faith, being belief that isn't based on evidence, is the principal vice of any religion. Einstein, in 1954, wrote an essay. It was called On uh, Science and Religion. And his opening line uh, is, I, I just thought was great. It's, without religion, science is lame. And religion without science is blind. Now, I, I, don't, I don't take it that way, but I do take that he was wrestling deeply with how science and faith fit together and how they work. Our faith is evidence-based. But let me say this, and this I'll reveal something about me. This may not be your philosophical position, uh, but it is mine. And that is this, is that all of our lives fundamentally are based in faith. It has to be, from my perspective. The question is, faith in, in what? The atheist has to believe, if he's an evolutionist or she's an evolutionist, that bottom line, it's a matter of faith. We have faith too. The question is not whether faith is not there. The question is what is the object of the faith? We can shout in the scientific community all day long that this is fact. Really? Don't believe me? Answer me this. How did something come from nothing? And it's a common sense question. No one can answer that question without faith. It's a matter of what you believe at that moment. Faith is not the vice of religion. Faith is the essence of life, and faith in Jesus Christ is the essence of eternal life. Father, we are so grateful that you've given us your word. Wow, how blind would we be reaching and groping and and not really finding anything of value. And and Lord, we grab a hold of some dried out piece of wood and gnaw on it and say, oh, this this is the truth of life. We're so thankful that you give us your word, which is sweet, which is lovely to consume. And we are ever amazed that you allow us to be in right relationship with you because of the work of your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.